Are you a mom launching kids into adulthood? If so, you need to know about my Empty Nest Mom Retreat. It is the gathering for moms who have at least one child over the age of 18 or who have launched them all and have a full empty nest. September 27th through the 29th are the dates, and Cedar Lake Retreat Center in Cedar Lake, Indiana is the place. You can fly into Chicago airports and drive to Cedar Lake in a little over an hour. Come join me. Best value registration is available through May 27th, and space is limited to just 100 moms, so don't delay. Check out jillsavage.org slash retreat to register today. It made me very, very determined that what people need more than quick answers and Bible verses is they need to know they're not alone. Welcome to the No More Perfect Podcast, where we talk about the messy, less than perfect, but real stuff of life. My name's Jill Savage, and I'll be your host. I'm so glad you're here. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the No More Perfect Podcast. I hope this finds you well. But if it doesn't, then today's topic is especially for you, because we're going to be talking about pain and suffering and hard seasons of life and where God is in it all. And that is something that I have certainly understood over the last 10 years, particularly as uh, I have dealt with quite a few different things that have happened in my world. Um, My husband's infidelity, our son's mental health issues, um, our son fathering a child outside of marriage, our, um, uh, my cancer journey, that has not been easy. And uh, in the midst of it all, uh, I have a dear friend who has also walked through um, some really, really difficult things also over the last 10 years or so. My friend Michelle Cachat joins me. Michelle, welcome to the No More Perfect podcast. Uh, it is an absolute delight. Uh, you have been a friend for decades now. Decades. <laughs> Can you believe that? So to I be know. here with you just makes my day. Oh, well, I am, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we scheduled it months ago. Um, For those of you that don't know Michelle, let me tell you just a little bit about her. She's an author, she's a speaker, a coach, and she just has a rare warmth and transparency that just draws people in. Michelle is a three-time head and neck cancer survivor. She's the parent of children from hard places. Uh, She's become a reluctant expert of trauma, pain, (laughs) and deep human need for authentic connection. And Michelle has three books. Her first was a memoir. It was titled... Her first was a memoir titled Undone, a story of making peace with an unexpected life. Her second book was a devotional that was actually written in the brutal months after her third round of cancer. And it was titled I Am, a 60-day journey of knowing who you are because of who he is. And then her most recent book is Relentless, the unshakable presence of a God who never leaves. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful books. 
I've read each one of them and I know what a difference they make. Uh, Michelle and her husband are coming to us, or Michelle comes to us from Colorado, where she lives with her husband, Troy, and their six children, ages 13 to 28. So, Michelle, whoo! That was a mouthful. Just mentioning six children ages 13 to 28. Every time I hear that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's true. That's Wait. my reality. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote three books in there and I had cancer. Oh my gosh. It just, that makes me tired. Same, same. Oh. Yeah. And you and I actually went through cancer at the same time. We, part of it at the same time. Yeah, part of it. You, we have a picture of us sitting at dinner where you were still growing your hair back in and I was losing weight trying to recover from all of that. And so we both looked like we, Death were warmed on over. <laughs> we did. I just ran across that picture the other day and I was like, wow, wow. Yeah. That's all I could say was wow. Uh -huh. So yeah, that was uh, have us both in that same place going through something similar at the same time. I mean, as hard, as hard as it was, to have the community of our suffering was also a gift. It was. In fact, there for a while, you and I were on very similar chemo and kind of a chemo routine, or we were doing some of the same tests at the same time. And so we would go in for different scans and just pray for each other. We were like, you, I, don't, I don't know if you remember, you sent me some of your hats. So, you know, my hair was falling out and you sent me some of your caps to keep my my noggin warm. And I was very <laughs> grateful. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. That's right. You oh did. my goodness. Yeah. So it has been quite the journey. And Michelle and I actually go way back because she grew up in the church that my husband and I started attending in the late 80s. And and so that was her home church. But my mm -hmm. husband had just gotten hired as the children's pastor. And, and Michelle's parents actually mentored Mark and I. And so that back then, Michelle was a college student. And yeah. so you mentioned that I'm going to be 50 at my next birthday. That's how long we've been friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. I know. I know. Right. <laughs> yes, I was a college student. So here we are. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, we're going to talk today and we're just going to talk really openly about the hard stuff of life. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, I, I think that we don't do enough of that. And I really want this to be a, a safe place. I want this to honestly be a podcast episode that people share with friends uh -huh. that are going through something really difficult. So, so let's just, you know, we've talked just briefly, but you're, your tagline uh, has been making peace with an imperfect life. Mm -hmm. So can you share just a little bit more? I've given like yeah. a, you know, a brief overview, but share just a little bit more about your imperfect life and, and what have you walked through over the last uh, years? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up kind of believing that if you are a good person and you make good choices and do everything right, you can then design a life that looks like you want it to. And my dream growing up as a girl in the 70s and 80s was to have the ideal family, to have a husband who loves Jesus and children who love Jesus. And we go to church every day it's open and we do family devotions and all of us, right? That there was a life of ministry and everything. And that's what I envisioned. And in my mind, as long as I did all the things that God wanted me to do, that was going to be the result. Uh, and then I found myself married to a pastor at the age of 21. So shortly after you and I met, just a few years after that, 
And within the first week of being married, I discovered that there was a whole life, a whole second identity that I didn't know about. In other words, the whole marriage had been built on somewhat of a lie. And so all that to say is over the next uh, several years, as I tried to fight for a marriage, I all of a sudden I had to wrestle with, wait a second, but I did everything right. I, I followed mm-hmm. Jesus. I married somebody who said he loved Jesus. I, you know, I went to Bible college. I went to church. I did A, B, and C. So why am I ending up in this big hot mess? Right. Mm. And so, you know, when you're in that place, what do you do? Right. So very much an imperfect life. And so what I did was try to do everything I could to save my marriage. Because if I could save my marriage, I could get my life back on track the way I had dreamed it. Mm-hmm. But that didn't work because it takes more than one person to save a marriage. And so at the age of 27, I was a new mom with a one and a half year old. And I watched my husband drive away for the last time. And I became a single mom, a single divorced mom with no career, no idea what I was going to do. And again, six days before Christmas. So, you know, what do you do at 27 when all of a sudden your whole plan turns upside down? And that was a piece of it. But then over the years that followed, we had additional things that happened. I, I met a wonderful man at my home church, and he was unexpectedly a single father, and I was unexpectedly a single mother. So I thought, hey, it makes sense. Why don't we just become a family? Then I can get my life back on track and have the perfect life I dreamed of. But I hadn't anticipated the challenge that is a step family. <laughs> it doesn't quite work mm-hmm. out like Brady Bunch on TV. And so... <laughs> So then I get to navigate step family. And let me tell you, if there's ever an example of imperfect family doing its best to try to figure it out, it's a step family. Just complicated. It's hard. And even when people have great intentions, it's very, very difficult. And then about that time, about the time we thought we were getting a handle on step family, uh, I, my kids were teenagers. So then I was a mom of three adolescent boys. <laughs> okay, that makes to, me tired. <laughs> do I need to say anything there? No. Then we're just navigating what is quote unquote normal challenges, but talk about imperfect, right? right? Our family looked anything but perfect. It was intense, lots of conflict, lots of problems. And then again, about the time that I thought I could get our family back on track and get back to my perfect life, I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. That was 10 years ago now. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was someone who ran half marathons and did triathlons and ate healthy and everything else. And even doing all of that, I still came down with squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue, cancer of the tongue. And as a woman who makes her living as a communicator, as a speaker, it was highly inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just slightly. Just slightly inconvenient. So then I'm going for cancer. And a few months after that, we get a phone call from a relative telling us about a mom who could no longer care for her children. Uh, She was a meth addict and she had twin four-year-olds and five-year-old. And the question was asked of us, will you take them? And so we made the decision to, in 24 hours, to drive to another state and load up three preschoolers in our car, bring them home and start parenting all over again. But again, what we didn't anticipate is you can't take in children who have gone through horrific abuse in the first five years of their life and not deal with some fallout from that. So I became a trauma parent, which talk about imperfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then about the time we thought we were getting a handle on that, I was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. 
And then about eight months after that, I was diagnosed with cancer for the third time. And, you know, through this whole process, you know, the, the kind of my tagline, the title of my book, Making Peace with an Imperfect or Unexpected Life, I've had about 25 years to practice that right now. And, <laughs> and I'm still in progress. Yes. Yes, you are. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it has been a lot, Michelle. It has been a lot. And yet you have leveraged that pain for purpose. You have allowed God to use it. Uh, even when you didn't necessarily have answers, you've been very open about the struggles. And I've so appreciated that. I appreciate that when I, you know, have followed you on, I mean, just knowing you personally, but, you know, just even what you share on social media, on your blog, so very honest. And I'm so grateful. I think the reason for that is simply because, well, first of all, thank you. That's a grace and a mercy. I don't always feel like I've done it well, but we all do the best we can. But I think during those years in my 20s as a, a woman with her marriage falling apart and then a single mom and all of that, there were lots of platitudes, lots of verses that were quoted at me about how God hates divorce and God wants this and God wants that. And all I felt was shame. Mm. And what I really needed was somebody to enter into the space and say, man, life is hard. It's complicated. Yes, These things happen and it's, it's awful and I'm sorry it made me very, very determined that what people need more than quick answers and Bible verses is they need to know they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can help people to feel not alone is by telling the truth about how hard it really is. Yes. 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 I totally agree. Yeah. Well, um, what would you say uh, to the person uh, because I hear this all the time, you know, as I uh, do relationship coaching and as Mark and I particularly help couples in crisis, and I will hear people to say, you know, life is unfair. This is unfair. What happened to me is unfair. What do you say to that person? Yes, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, life is unfair. Everything about life, I mean, Oh my goodness, if everything was fair, first of all, Jesus would have never came and we wouldn't be saved. <laughs> the Very whole true. gospel story is an unfair redemption of a people who didn't deserve it. Life is unfair. And I, I mean, I remember growing up and my dad would tell me over and over again, when I would say life isn't fair, he'd say, yep, you're right, it's not. The sooner you learn that lesson, the happier you'll be. <laughs> I still tried to make everything fair. I think my internal sense of justice and right and wrong yes. wanted to make everything black and white. And you, know, you complicate that with a little bit of a legalistic perspective of even faith, right? Yeah. That there should be consequences and reward and all of that. And yet the reality is, is the true gospel message, when you read the whole Bible front to back, is an unfair gift. God should have never been punished for what we deserved, ever. Okay, yes. And so his the whole idea of the gospel that Jesus came to die for us is him taking the ultimate unfairness so that way when we deal with what's unfair, we realize that we're not alone in that place. Mm, wow. That is a powerful, powerful perspective. The more that we demand and expect fairness, the more that we will be disappointed and sink into despair. It is a false promise. 
a unrealistic expectation. Yes. Whenever we expect that, expect life to deliver fairness or expect the people around us to always be fair or expect our children to always do what we tell them to do. Yeah. We're doing is a formula for disappointment. Yeah. Well, and unrealistic expectations feeds discontentment. That's what it, it completely feeds it. And so then when we don't realize that we're sitting in this perpetual place of discontentment, we don't realize that what's feeding that is unrealistic expectations and demands that life look a certain way. And some of this is a product of the American ideal. Let's just be clear. In Western civilization, we've been promised that we can have anything we want, that we can have the life that we want if we just do X, Y, Z. We in, in the United States, we wake up with an expectation of opportunity, an expectation of comfort, an expectation of having our needs met. And even those of us in hardship, we still have an expectation that we should be able to get what we want. If you go to India, the poorest places in India, the poorest places in China, the the most politically oppressive places in Asia or some of these other communist kind of areas, there is no expectation of personal rights. Hmm. There is none, right? right. Yeah. And in fact, as I've sat in different places like Haiti and Burkina Faso, Africa, and other places, there's not even an expectation of food and shelter. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, like there's no sense of entitlement about that. And so as a result, many times in these other places, they have a more healthy theology of suffering because they haven't set this expectation of it's all about me. So some of this that we're running into really is part of the individualistic American ideal versus truly a reality of humanity as a whole. Wow. Yeah. Great perspective. Great perspective. So let's talk for just a moment about grief because you have lost a lot physically. Mm-hmm. You have, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I can say that I lost, I lost part of my breast in my breast cancer, but I don't have to deal with that every day. I certainly see it when I get dressed in the morning, but I don't have to deal with that every day. You have lost part of your tongue. Two thirds of it. Two thirds of your tongue. Yes. Yeah. And every time I hear you, Michelle, I feel like I, I hear that less and less. Like you are really... <laughs> It's a miracle, isn't it? It is a miracle. <laughs> it really is. But talk. let's talk for a little bit about grief and loss. What, what have you learned mm-hmm. about grief and loss? That time doesn't make it go away. Mm. We have this kind of false, again, false expectation that grief is cyclical and it's a linear process and that in a certain amount of time, you'll be done with it. You'll put it on the shelf and never have to face it again. Mm. Grief is like a lost limb. You learn to adapt in the absence of the limb, but it's still missing and you still feel its absence from time to time. Mm. I've also learned, and this is something that I listened to a podcast that talked about this. I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who coined this phrase and I'm not going to remember it, but I learned about the term ambiguous grief. Ambiguous grief. So when somebody dies, let's say, you know, a spouse or a a friend dies and we go to a funeral and we see the casket and then the casket gets buried, it's grief for sure. And it's definitely a loss and it's horrific. But there are there is something called ambiguous grief 
which is when we lose something that's not as tangible. So for mm -hmm. me, I lost two thirds of my tongue. I also lost about 12 lymph nodes in my neck. I lost my submandibular gland. I lost some of the use of my arm. I have no feeling in my arm because they took tissue and vessels from my arm to rebuild my mouth. I lost some tissue from my leg. On top of those losses, I had external and internal radiation that burned me, third degree burns from nose to chest on the inside and outside, okay? So as a result of all that, I probably only have about 10 to 20% of my taste. I have chronic levels of pain. I have nerve damage in my arm and my neck. I cannot kiss my husband like I used to. I can't talk without pain. I drool on myself. If mm -hmm. I talk too much, I lose the ability. And eating is very difficult. Swallowing chicken is almost impossible for me. There's lots of foods that are very difficult for me to eat. Not to mention, if I only have 20% of my taste, it's right. not very much fun. And that's ambiguous because people will know that I lost my tongue to cancer, but they don't know all the other layers of grief. Yes. And so how many times a day in a 24-hour period do I swallow? Do I answer a question for my kids? Do I want to kiss my husband goodnight or goodbye? Do I want to taste what I made for dinner? Every time those things happen, I feel the loss again. Okay. Mm, it's yeah. another loss. I face it over and over again. And, but, but it's ambiguous because there's not a casket in the ground that people can acknowledge and see this is what you lost. And so the reality is, is so much of, of my friends and family or people online, they've moved on from my loss, but I deal with my loss every day. Yes, you do. And mm -hmm. so most days now it's, it's diminished. It's not in the acute phase of grief anymore, but mm -hmm. I feel the grief every moment of every day. It's still with me. It's like having a limb cut off. I'm still missing it. It doesn't incapacitate me anymore. It doesn't make me curl up in the corner and cry every day, but it's such a legitimate grief. And um, one thing people try to do, and I, this is important to share, is that in an effort to make me feel better, people will say, well, I don't notice anymore. Or you are, you know, it sound, you sound just like you used to sound. And it's all very, very well-intentioned. And it's, I appreciate it because I have worked hard to talk. However, at the same time, it's almost like, let's just not, you can't be sad about it anymore because you sound fine. Mm. And I'm like, there's so many other layers of grief here. It's not just my speech, right? Yeah. And I still remember how I used to sound. And that's still a, there's still a gap between what used to be and what is. And so allowing myself to still grieve that without feeling like I need to speed up the process and quote unquote, I should be over it by now. Mm. Yes. Yes. Right? yes. There's no, that's a false false statement. Nobody, there, nobody says that you need to be over it by now. You can still be sad. Right. Right. You're allowed. How, let's just say that we know someone that is dealing with intangible grief like that. Mm -hmm. What can we do to help them? Is it, is it just occasionally saying exactly what you just said? It's, uh, it's like sometimes even just saying, I see you. Yeah. I, I see how tough you are. I see how far you've come. But I also want to acknowledge that I see how hard this is for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can imagine. I, I intentionally put myself in the position of trying to imagine what daily life must be like for you. And I, I would imagine it's difficult times. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
My dog's barking. Did you hear that? Okay. Yeah, it's all right. It happens. This is called the No More Perfect Podcast. <laughs> We're cool. <laughs> I was going to say, you to edit, whatever, but okay. Um, you know, sometimes it's simply saying, asking a question, tell me what life is like for you right now. Mm. I know it's been five years since your son died. I know it's been three years since the accident, but I'm sure you, you, you still carry the reality of that with you. Tell me what that's like for you. What does that feel like for you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, making space for that. Uh, all that does is, first of all, um, allow them to have their own experience, that they don't have to be on your timeline. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's showing them that you care about them as a whole person. That means their grief, whatever it is, mm -hmm. is part of the person that you love. And it's making space for that. But that requires you and I, if we are the person supporting the person in grief, we have to learn how to be comfortable with the discomfort of unresolved pain. And most of the time, our urgency to get people to fast forward is because we're not comfortable with it. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You're exactly right. We're not. We want to be over. We want to assume that everything's fine because there's a part of us that's afraid. What if it happens to us? And so there's some denial there. There's some difficulty being able to sit in places of pain. And But what we don't realize is, is at that point, we're really not there to help the other person. We're actually there to resolve our own pain. You know, yes. But they need a space to feel it. Yes, yes. And that's, I think, also why we, because we don't know what to say, we offer platitudes. Yeah. And one day we think that will make everything feel better and... Right. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. You know, one of the things that Mark and I do in our marriage coaching is we work with some some research that kind of goes back to childhood and deals with how we were comforted mm -hmm. in our childhood. And, you know, we ask a question of most people that we work with. Can you think of a time where you were comforted, not offered a platitude, but where somebody literally sat in the pain with you. Mm -hmm. They didn't try to fix it. They didn't, all they did was try to feel it to the best of their ability with you. Mm -hmm. And most people will say, I can't think of any time mm -mm. because we really don't know how to do that. We really don't. We really don't. I had to, you know, as I was going through suffering and saw the real absence of people that know how to do that, I had to face the fact that I don't do a very good job of that. When my kids are having a bad day, in my mind, it's so minuscule what they're dealing with. I'm like, oh, toughen up, deal with it. Such is life, yeah. right? But what would it look like for me to say, wow, that must feel really bad. I'm sorry. Yep. Yes. And, and to recognize that, you know, I, I often say, even as in parenting, you know, we've all heard the phrase, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And man, that can just, you know, when I remind myself of that, like, you know, right now your grandchild doesn't care what you know until they know that you care. I mean, I have to put myself in that situation. Mm -hmm. My daughter doesn't care what I know until she knows that I care. So it's learning to sit in that painful mm -hmm. place with them, not try to solve a problem, not try to fix it. And it is, it is very, very, very difficult. But the more we learn to do that, mm -hmm. the deeper connections we make. Absolutely true. Whenever I'm having this conversation with people and we're talking about this, this is the point when people come back and say, 
Well, you can't just enable people to stay in a place of despair and depression. That just enables them, right? Okay, and that's fair. I get that, right? But but when we start attacking them with a, a three-step plan before we let them cry, they can't even receive it. The brain isn't even able to receive the execution information, what they need to do until you address yep. the limbic part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain where they're hurting. I mean, we have to yeah. get them back into that frontal cortex. I mean, this is science, right? But really, if they're in a place of grief and sadness and loss, they're in the emotional place of their brain. They have no access to reasoning. They're just yes. sad. <laughs> and they are. And the way to get the brain back online where they can think is actually to create safety. Well, you don't create yeah. safety by telling people what to do. You create safety by sitting them with the, sitting with them in the mud, in the muck. Yes. Yes, you do. You know, one of the most powerful times where I can remember somebody doing that for me. I think I might get emotional talking about mm-hmm. this. Woo. I, I wasn't expecting that. That tells you how but powerful it is. It, it does, doesn't it? It was when my husband left and I was you know, I just, I never thought I'd find myself in that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm grateful. Eventually he came home. Obviously we have marriage ministry around that. But when he left, I had a friend who came the night he left with her bag, with a bag packed. Mm-hmm. She was, she's this empty nester at the time. She said, my husband told me to stay as long as I need. And I know. I visibly feel that. I mean, that's yes. how powerful that is. I can feel I can feel it as if she said it to me. That's, I mean, write this down, everyone. <laughs> write it down. <laughs> I know. And um, and I remember the very first night, so she slept in the guest room, which was across the hall from my bedroom. And that night I cried and cried and cried mm-hmm. throughout the night. Like I would wake up in the night and I would just, my heart was broken and I would just cry and cry and cry. And I thought I was doing a good job keeping it quiet, you know, cause the house, I had two teenage boys at home still and, and she's across the hallway, but obviously I wasn't. And, and at one point in the night, I heard her slip into my bedroom and she laid down on the bed and she just held me mm-hmm. and I just cried. She cried with me. And that was so powerful because there was no fixing it and and there were no words. Words weren't even appropriate at that moment. Mm -hmm. So we desperately, desperately need to learn how to sit with people in their pain and to, to recognize that sometimes it just can't be fixed. It can't be. You know, that's really what she did is really what Psalm 23 is about when it talks about he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I mean, I can just picture Jesus coming in and crawling into bed. And this is what the shepherd does, right? Yeah, uh, he sure does. Alongside and um, what she demonstrated is really ultimately what any suffering, grieving person needs, and it's presence. It's presence. Yes. Don't need solutions. Doesn't don't need platitudes. Don't need. You know, I could use a casserole from time to time, but really, what we need <laughs> is presence. We need people who are secure enough in their own rootedness in God, that they can make space for our pain, that they can sit in pain themselves, that they are rooted enough in the love of God and love for us that they can just enter in and be there without needing to resolve it. 
Yes, yes, you're exactly right. And you know, while we're while we're on that subject, you were talking about the casserole, and I don't know about you, but one of the things I discovered in my in, in my multi crises that I have experienced, both when Mark left, when I walked through the cancer journey, is I think people have a they have the right heart, but the most ineffective words that people can say to someone in crisis is let me know what you need. Oh, it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is, I mean, we say it out of a good heart. Yeah, we do. But you don't know what you need. And again, you don't have access to even reasoning. So to be able to, be able to even identify what you need is impossible for you at that point. It is. And so probably the most effective, and this is one of the things when I talk on this subject, I share, I'm like, you just, you literally show up with food. You, you say, I have two hours Tuesday afternoon. What, what rooms in the house need to be cleaned? Like you offer the specifics yes. and you just, or you literally sometimes just do them. Mm-hmm. Like you don't even ask, but if you do ask, it's specific. I loved when people would go to the grocery store and they would say, I'm at the store right now. Is there anything you need? Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, even- yes, Absolutely. Yeah. Even after Mark left, that was a gift to me, which I don't think that people would think of, but here's why. I couldn't keep myself together emotionally. Can you not walk down the aisles of a grocery store? Of course. No. And then I'd see people and they'd say, how are you? And that's all it would take for me to just end up in a puddle. (laughs) So, you know, so it was, it was such a gift because I just didn't even have to put myself in a public situation. So um, I think that we need to be far more specific and not be afraid to just simply show up. Totally. I have a friend who recently went through the Midwest derecho. I don't know if you heard about in the news, but the derecho was an inland hurricane that went through Iowa and just hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of damage, especially in Iowa. But this friend of mine, the derecho went right through her town, completely destroyed her property, took down, she had 68 trees on her property, only about three or four are still standing, landed on her house, destroyed, you know, everything, right? And people did this for her, said, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> Which yeah. is very ineffective. Um, and so she finally had a friend come in and this particular friend, her specialty is disaster relief. And so this particular friend knew what to do. And so she gave my friend multiple choices. I can do A, I can do B, I can do C. Which one would you prefer? Multiple choice is much easier, right? Yes. I can, I can come and spend the weekend with you. I can stay at a hotel and help in the yard, you know, or I can come in a couple of weeks, which would be the most helpful for you. And that's much easier than just that open-ended, let me know what you need. And so that that multiple choice thing, at least for me, ended up being helpful. Say, I want to help you right now. I don't know what that is. These are some options. If any of these things, you know, let me know which one you'd like to do. And sometimes that was helpful too. Yeah, because it's because it's not making the other person have to think hard. Yeah. It's making it, it's putting those choices in front of them, which it, you might not even end up with one of those choices, but it'll make you think of something else and go, oh, but wait a minute. Yes. One other thing that was helpful for me is people who would text me and say, no need to reply. I don't need to hear back from you. I just want you to know I love you. I had a couple of friends that when I didn't reply to their texts, they would say, are you mad at me? Are you upset? What's wrong? Why aren't you replying? And all that did was add, I'm like, um, 
my hands are a little full, full with crisis right now. So the text that would come in and say, I just want you to know I love you. You don't need to reply. In other words, yeah. what they were saying is, I'm a grown up. You don't need yeah. to do anything for me. I am here for you. Yep. Yep. Such a gift. Yep. So one of the things that you talk about in your Relentless book is you say that the presence of pain causes us to question the presence mm -hmm. of God. Yeah. Why, why is that? And then what, and what do we do with that? Yeah. So uh, your pain is an isolator. Okay. Whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, if you are in pain, it doesn't matter how many people are in the room, you feel alone. Pain yes. creates separation. It creates distance. As Christians, at times, our twisted theology makes us believe that pain is punishment. So at times we assume we're in pain because God's mad at us or we've done something wrong or he's punishing us. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard from people who think that they had a miscarriage because they had sex before marriage or they got cancer because they drank too much or, or they did something wrong or God was mad at them or whatever. I've had people come up to me. I had a woman come up to me at an event one time. I just got done finished speaking, sharing my story. At the end of the event, she met me in the back of the room. She almost grabbed me by the shoulder. Like she put her hands on my shoulders and got in my face and said, are you tired of cancer yet? Because if you were really tired of, of it, you would do something about it. Oh, my so goodness. So the implication behind that is that, and what she was basically saying is that I was responsible for making mistakes and doing things that caused my own cancer, right? Oh, um, my. And we do this sometimes. We assume that some, for some reason we wouldn't be in this predicament if we had done everything right or if God wasn't mad at us. So that not only creates distance from our humans, other people around us, our relationships, but we assume that our suffering is our fault or, or, I mean, cause the alternative is we blame God and then where are we, right? That we get mad at God and that's its own distance, right? Uh, and so that's part of what pain does. It creates isolation. It creates a sense of otherness that makes us think we're alone. And then on the spiritual plane, there's often not a far distance between the experience of our suffering and the belief that somehow we're being punished for something. Mm, that is so true. Yeah. And that's why we make that. That's why we connect the dots that way. Yeah but they are not dots that are, are meant to be connected that way. We also believe that, and this gets really into deep theological water, so I'm not sure we want to completely unpack this box, but there's this thought that if God is all powerful and I'm in pain, he would do something about it. Mm. That pain is the mm. enemy. Pain is the worst thing that could happen. And so if God's not doing something about it, either he's not good, he's not powerful, or he doesn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But the right. premise there is that pain is the worst thing that could happen. And I don't necessarily believe that's the case. I think pain is awful, but at times pain is actually a gift. Mm -hmm. Like when we put right. our finger in the flame and we burn and we realize, oh, fire's bad. And then, you know, for the rest of our life, you know, we learn that as toddlers. And then we grow up realizing to not put ourselves in fire. Pain was a good teacher. It's necessary. Mm hmm. Right. It refines us. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I think about when I think about the challenges that we I have faced over the last 10 mm -hmm. years, 
I have learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about God. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much about his truth and his word. And I would have missed that Mm -hmm. without the pain in my life. I would have missed those lessons. Uh, What I had to deal with or I had to wrestle through is I really thought that what was at stake in this life was my dreams, my plans, and my comfort. In my mind, the stakes were my husband, my children, my future, my career, my whatever. Those were the things that were the big things that were at stake. And what God gently started to teach me, and boy, it was a long process. He was so gracious in how he taught me, is that what is most at stake in this life is our faith. What is most at stake is our faith. There's a story in the New Testament of Jesus talking um, to Peter, and this was right before Peter's denial, right before the crucifixion and death. And Jesus is kind of given, he's focused in, honed in on Peter, and he tells Peter. In other words, Jesus knows he's getting ready to die. So there's some urgency in what he's getting ready to say. All of his words there before his crucifixion are important. We say the most important things right before we die. And he looked at Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. And I always think it's so powerful. I get chills every time I share this story. Okay, what is Jesus praying for Simon, for Peter, right before his crucifixion? Is he praying for Peter's wife and family, his marriage? Is he praying for Peter's health? Is he praying for Peter's future career as an apostle? He said, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. So in other words, Mm. just one thing that was most at stake before Peter went through his season of pain and suffering was his faith. And when I started to realize that what is most at stake in this life, if I really believe what I say I believe, then it's only going to get better for me from here. That means what is most at stake in this life is not my marriage, is not my children, is not my career, is not my health. What is most at stake is my faith. And sometimes... The best thing for strengthening my faith, for digging out deep roots into what I really believe is the pain and suffering that I really want Mm -hmm. to avoid. And then if that is true, then although pain is awful and suffering is just beyond unfair, it's also at the same time an extraordinarily and almost merciful gift. And that's hard for those of you who are listening that are really in a place of suffering. Just file this away for right now. You don't have to grasp onto it this second. Okay. It's okay to just be sad and grieve. Just know that in this life, what is most at stake, I know it feels like whatever you're losing right now is the worst thing in the world. Okay. But if God is real, And if he has an eternity that is so glorious that this life is only the barest shadow of it, then what really is at stake here is our ability to believe that he is with us and that he loves us and that he will not let us go. That's what is at stake. Yes, it absolutely is. Yes. Those are a powerful perspective and it, it is hard. It's hard to grasp but important to understand. And so then that begs the question, Michelle, what can happen to our heart in crisis if we don't attach it to God, if we don't attach it to his word, if we don't view it through eyes of faith? That's really where the rubber meets the road, right? So what happens in pain and suffering is our feelings rise up and become very, very powerful. Okay. And they're valid, right? For the woman who's lost a child, for the man whose wife just walked out on him, for the person who was just diagnosed and given three months to live, 
all of those feelings are a hundred percent valid. This life is terrifying. <laughs> it's hard and difficult and yes. unfair, right? Yes. But what happens is those feelings can cloud facts at times, right? The feelings can tell mm-hmm. us, yes, God doesn't love me. God's not with me. Everything's bad. There's no hope. Nothing's up ahead. And so why it's so critical that we have a foundation of faith is because when the feelings start to take over, we need to have some facts at the ready, some evidence of God's presence and goodness at the ready to help speak truth into the reality and validity of our feelings, right? Yes. So when I sit there and I hear or I feel in the moment that God's abandoned me, he doesn't care about me, I'm not here. I need to have some scripture right at my hands, like Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus says, and surely I will be with you always, always. Yes. You know, God, you know, the whole, it's in the Old Testament, also the new, that he said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus saying, I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus always also saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have to have those verses, those facts at the ready, because the reality of my pain is that pain is so intense that it screams really loud. And if I don't have the truth at hand, then the loudest voice in the room is my fear and my pain. And I need to make sure that the truth of what I believe about who God is and what he said is the loudest voice in the room, even when I'm suffering. Yes, yes, yes. I think it, it's, you know, I, I remember hearing Lisa Turkhurst say, as it related to our feelings and our emotions, that our feelings need to be indicators, yeah. but not dictators. And that's that's what we're talking about here. It's hard to do that when you're feeling it. Like, to I have a friend who several years ago, her son committed suicide. You know what? For a period of time, you just need to grieve, feel all the feelings. They're not going to be yes. ignored. You just weep your little heart out. You no. can throw a pillow. You can pound the wall. You do whatever you need to do because that's awful. It's unfair. It's unspeakable. It's just so beyond imagination. And so it's hard to do the, you know, the feel in that moment is not the time for you to go feelings or indicators, not dictators. But down the road or in just normal interactions that are painful with family and conflict and everything else. Say, what is this telling me? And this feeling, whatever it is, it's telling me I got, I've got something valid to grieve and then give space to it. Right. That's how it indicates. It goes, Hey, this is a legitimate loss. That means I can pay attention to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I can balance it out with truth that, that I need to give voice to that needs to be as loud as mm-hmm. the pain in totally. the right time. You know, there's a couple really key stories in the Bible. One is the story of Elijah, and it's in the Old Testament. I write about this in my book, Relentless. But the story of Elijah, he's doing lots of good ministry. Let me tell you, he is doing all the right things for God. And the Bible even talks about how he was just, I mean, he was top of the line when it comes to Christian ministry. He was He was the right stuff, right heart, all of it. (laughs) And yet he did some ministry with King Ahab and Jezebel and thought that he was going to convert them to belief in God. And instead, they put a price on his life and were trying to kill him. Okay, And at that point, Elijah gets very discouraged. He runs for his life because he knows he's a dead man. He ends up under a tree, a broom tree, and collapses. And he says, take my life. 
I, you know, basically he said, take my life. I regret the day I was ever born. I don't want to live. He got to the end of himself, right? And what God does right. in that moment is very telling because if it was most of us Christians, we would tell him now, 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 <laughs> have faith. God is good. Now, now, have you been to church recently? Maybe you should read your Bible. And God doesn't do any of that. It says that God woke him up, gave him water and bread, let him go back to sleep, woke him up again, gave him water and bread and said the words, eat, drink, for the journey is too much for you. That is it's validation. It's validation. Yes. It's God entering into the place of yes. pain. It's like your friend crawling into bed and letting you cry. That's exactly what God did. And then the other place that I find comfort is just really the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's so critical. This is so important. Jesus' grief. And we talk about it on Good Friday and we've talked about it. But we don't spend much time really thinking about the fact that Jesus was God's son, right? God in the flesh. He knew from the day one that he was going to die. That was always the plan. Yes. He also knew that the purpose of the plan was the redemption of mankind. He had spent time in heaven with God. He had an image of, I mean, he was there at the creation of the world, right? He knew all of that. And yet he still grieved to the point that he was sweating drops of blood. Yes. Which means his grief yes. is not a lack of faith, right? So many times as Christians, we tell people that their grief is evidence of their lack of faith. No, grief is a natural response to the human condition. And Jesus mm -hmm. grieved, and he grieved yes. to the full extent of the grief. And yet he reminded himself yes. of the facts. And he said, but not my will, your will be done. Because he trusted the facts and the truth about the goodness of God, right? Yes. It was both and, and that to me is such a beautiful model. Of course, God would give us a beautiful model of honest laments with rooted faith. Yes. That they are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. They actually occur simultaneously. Yes. Yes. Oh, Michelle, this is so powerful. And this is such, such wisdom and so mm -hmm. desperately needed. I'm just so grateful. Thank you for taking the time to to share with us what you have learned in your journey and, and to just help us to remember mm -hmm. what's most important in the midst of, Thank you. of hard and, and life is hard. I mean, I'm still learning. I have no doubt that there are more challenges up ahead. I mean, that's just, that's what this is. You know, Jesus saying in this world, you will have trouble. You will have pain, but take Troubles. heart. I've yep. overcome the world. I mean, that's for all of us, but guess what? The best is coming. It is. <laughs> That's right. And it's not on this earth. <laughs> I mean, what a sweet gift it will be after having this pain and suffering. It will, our joy will be that much more profound. Yes, it will be. Oh my goodness. Well, if you uh, feel like you want to take some next steps, I will make sure and link to Michelle's three different books in the show notes. And uh, Michelle, at one time you had some, they were like uh, truth cards, Yes, they absolutely are. You can find them on my website. So if you go to michellecachat.com and click on the store, you will see them. It says God's word over you. And so in other words, when you are starting to let the messages of the world or the messages of your pain influence what you believe to be true, these this scripture ring, it's God's words over you, helps remind you of exactly what God has said about you, exactly how he feels about you. I've 
I passed them out during my cancer treatment. I passed them out to patients. Nurses would put them on their at their nurses station on their file cabinets just to remind themselves that there is a greater word beside besides pain and suffering. Mm, very powerful. Good. I'm glad to know those are still available and I will make sure and link that in the show notes as well. You know, this has been a, I mean, just a, this is topic is very tender and uh, I just, I feel like I would like to close in prayer. Would you be willing to close in prayer and pray for those that are listening that are in hard places? Father God, goodness, we, we come to you right now with so much that we don't understand losses that we just can't let go of, grief that mm-hmm. is keeping us awake at night, questions that we haven't yeah. answered, people that we've prayed for for years and years and years that still are struggling. And it breaks our hearts to deal with this ongoing pain and suffering that we we don't understand why or what we can even do about it. And sitting in the pain sometimes feels unbearable. Yeah. And so God, first of yes. all, it is miraculous to me it is beyond comprehension that you would enter into our human condition that you would give up heaven to become human and experience mortality and the daily pain and suffering as simply being a human being being alive and it says so much to me god that you would you would willingly do that and you say in your word hands down that you did it for love You did it because you love us, God. And so I pray for my friends listening right now that are in a tender place, that somehow that you would communicate to them, reveal to them the reality and depth of your love, the height and depth and width Mm -hmm. of your unfailing love. We already know, God, because you promised that you would never leave us, never forsake us. We know you are with us. But I pray for those who feel alone right now, God, that you would reveal to them your presence with them at this moment. That somehow in the name of Jesus, that the curtain would be drawn and that they would see that you are in fact with them, that you have not let them go. I pray that you bring scripture to mind, that you bring the right people in their path, that you would do whatever needs to be done for them to be convinced of your relentless presence that you have given everything in order to restore the relationship they have with you and that you will not let them go. And I also pray, God, that you would just heal their broken hearts. God, we will never behold the sight of heaven. I know this. I will never stop crying over what's been lost. I will never stop missing the things that I'm grieving on this side of heaven. But I pray that you would help us to heal just a little bit more today that the pain would not be as Mm -hmm. acute as it was yesterday, that we would start have seed of hope, God, for what you might, what you might be doing in the midst of all of this loss. Help us to have a vision for your work in this world. And then maybe God show us how you will use the very things that we're grieving in order to bring comfort to somebody else. Cause that's what you do. That's what you do. Yes. God, I think you ahead of time for what you're going to do. I know for a fact that you will offer some tangible comfort to people today. I think you ahead of time for that. And I pray all of us in the name of Jesus, who is coming quickly. Boy, I cannot wait. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Powerful. Michelle, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Truly, truly. It's 
I am always honored when people are willing to make space for the hard conversations. So thank you for your leadership in that. Thanks for joining me today on the No More Perfect podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future conversations. You can find the show notes and links to anything we talked about over at jillsavage.org slash podcast. See you next week for another not perfect, but very important conversation about the real stuff of life.